Welcome here. We are in part two of our series called The Bible. And the reason I really wanted to do this series, and the reason I'm so glad you're here to hear it, is that while most people, Christians or not Christian, uh, whether you're religious or not religious, or from other religions, while most people know some parts of the Bible stories, not everybody knows how we got the Bible. In fact, one of the reasons so many people have left the faith or left the church or have left Christianity is because they knew some little parts of the story, some little parts that just didn't connect with their worldview. And because they didn't know the bigger picture, because they might not have known the context, and most importantly, because they probably didn't know how we got the Bible that we have, it was easy to leave. And I think sometimes all of us at a certain point, or I shouldn't say all of us, some of us have received the Bible from somebody, especially if you're a churchgoer, you probably got it as a child or as a teenager or after baptism, and it was a black book with golden edges and thin pages, and you kind of read through a little bit of it, and maybe you got really excited, and you started in Genesis, and you got going, and there were some stories there, and it was really exciting for you. But then you got to Leviticus and Numbers, and you got to these crazy parts that didn't make any sense to you or to your worldview, or you didn't even know why they were included, and it was easy to kind of pump the brakes on reading it and put it away. And I've, I've heard it this, time, this, this way many times with my friends, uh, you know, in a hockey locker room, somebody will bring up, so you believe the stuff in the Bible, and I'll usually say yes, because I do. And they'll bring up a story, because all of us kind of have some ideas or some stories that we know. And they'll bring up you know, the story of Noah and Noah's Ark and the flood. And they'll kind of make fun of it and laugh about it. Or they'll bring up a story of Goliath or Samson or just little parts of the story Bibles that we kind of know. And because they're taken out of context, because they're taken out of the guts of the story on their own, they kind of don't meet people's worldview. They don't meet what they've learned about the world or what they've learned about science or what they've learned about history. And on their own, outside of the context of the story, the Bible can be so easily dismissed. And I think some of us have walked away from our faith because we took some parts of the story and because it didn't make sense with a greater, larger story of the Bible, people were able to walk away or to dismiss the Bible. So I think this series is a really important uh, series for us because not only are we looking at the stories in the Bible, we're looking at how we got the Bible. Now, if you missed the first part, we do have an app, we do have uh, all our messages online, and you can check them out. You can e easily go to the media tab in the app, and you can listen to my voice, and hopefully stay awake, but also learn about how we got the Bible and how we started with, and what we started with last week. So I really believe this is a big deal for Christians, and I think it's a really big deal for those of us who have faith, but I also think this is a really big deal for those of us that may have walked away from faith. Because understanding how we got this Bible is almost as important what's in it. Because the backstory truly sheds light on the story. So, as we got the Bibles, as, as young people, those of, did it, those of us that did, we, we kind of had an idea of these stories. But I think if I gave every person here a card, a 3 by 5 card, and asked you to write down, how do you think we got the Bible? And if all of us wrote down our answer and it handed it all back in, I think you would be amazed at how many different answers we would have. And I think so many answers that maybe as many people here, because there's all kinds of ideas how we got the Bible. 
And because we don't have a true sense of it sometimes, even though we grew up in the church, it's easy to dismiss it. So I want to just start with this point first and foremost. For some of you, you'd be like, yeah, I knew this, but for others, it might be big news. So I want to just start by saying Jesus did not write the Bible. In fact, Jesus didn't write any of it. But here's the new information really for most people, especially if you walked away from faith or if you grew up in faith but didn't know the story of the Bible. Jesus didn't write it, but Jesus is the reason that we have it. The story of Christianity begins when Jesus was discovered alive. That's why we sing about it today. That's why we sing in our songs that the tomb was empty, that, he, that his dead body breathed again. And it's important to know, as we talked about last week, if Jesus had just been crucified and didn't rise from the dead, you need to understand that we wouldn't have the Bible that we have. We wouldn't have the faith that we have, and there would be no Christianity because there would be nothing to write about. The reason men and women decided to document the life of Jesus is not necessarily just because of what he taught. And it wasn't that he was crucified. Many people were crucified at that time. That was not a new thing. What made Jesus unique was that the tomb was discovered empty. And when his disciples, and by disciples, I don't necessarily mean the 12 apostles. I mean the hundreds of people that followed Jesus from the banks of the Jordan River throughout his ministry. When they saw him alive from the dead, these men and women who ran for their lives when he was crucified, who hid when he was arrested, now went into the streets of Jerusalem and proclaimed not what they had read, but what they have, and not what they have heard, but what they had seen with their own eyes, the resurrected Savior, and because of that, the church began. The church began right in the wall of the city where he was sentenced to his death because people observed an event that could not be denied. And the fact we have four documents that record the life of Jesus, as we talked about this last week, is so unusual. Because there were lots of nobles and politicians of that time, that, and things were recorded about them, and other people were, even though they were important people, their stuff was lost because with time, documents disappeared, and there was wars, and things got burned up. And yet... The life of Jesus, who by all accounts, if you step back and didn't know the resurrection part, would have seemed, seemed like a nobody. And yet the life of Jesus is documented at least four times with Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. The life of Jesus that the early church held in such a high regard, and we talked about this last week, would eventually risk their own lives to protect these documents because they were so significant to their faith. And this is where I want to pick up this week. Now, Apostle Paul and others left Judea and began telling Gentiles. Now, Gentiles is anybody who's not Jewish. So if you weren't Jewish, you were Gentile. And I'm going to use that word a lot today. So Gentiles are just simply anybody who's not Jewish. And they, and they began to proclaim about Jesus. And the biggest transition happened is the Gentiles began to fall in love with the way of Jesus. They began to be enamored by the life of Jesus and the message of Jesus. And they wanted to embrace the life of Jesus for themselves. And they embraced Jesus as their Savior, as their Lord. And the struggle for them was the idea of giving up everything else they had grown up to believe. And this is a really tricky part because we don't often notice that because this is so different for us. But for the Gentiles, when they began to embrace Jesus as Lord... This was crucial 
And the idea was that now that they embraced Jesus as their God, they had to put away all the other gods. They had to believe there was only one God. Now, for us, it's kind of a no-brainer because many today either believe in one God or no God. Um, and we kind of hold this idea, well, there's either a creator out there somewhere or maybe it's just a fluke that this all happened. But we kind of have that idea today. And it's part of our Western DNA that we believe that there's one God. But it was, this was so radical and different for the Gentiles. It would be like if, if, you were, if you believed in God all your life and all of a sudden you decided not to believe. Or if you didn't believe in God and all of a sudden you decided to believe. It's such a tra- uh, drastic change in your life that it would have just shook you up. It would have been crazy in some ways. It was unheard of. So the entire ancient non-Jewish world was expected in order to be Christian to embrace the notion that there was only one God. And this was really unimaginable. So I want to take you kind of back into that space like you're thinking through your Western with your Western mind and your, and your Western eyes, which is good, you should be. But I just want to take you to that culture and just start at the place that as the Gentiles, as people begin to accept Jesus as Lord, it would have been unimaginable for them to think of him as their only God. And it's important to know that in the ancient times, people didn't convert, convert from one religion to another. They didn't leave Islam for Christianity or Christianity for Buddhism or Buddhism for Hinduism. It didn't, that's, didn't work that way in the first century. There weren't religions like that at that time. Every region, every nation, the barbarians, the Romans, the early Greeks, every place, every nation had their own gods. And most families had their own gods. And they worshipped their ancestors. And so when you moved from place to place, you kind of took your gods and you put them in the purse or in the sack and you went with them and then you set them up at the altar when you got to a new place and you would worship them and serve them. And in fact, if you got to a place and things were going really well and you saw that that place had its own gods, you would adopt them and add them to your gods. But then if something went really bad, like if there was a famine or a flood, you would take those new gods and you would just burn them and say, well, those aren't working, they're no good. And that's kind of how it was. It wasn't a stretch to accept new gods. The stretch was to say this was the only God. And last week we said that the Roman Empire didn't really care who you worshipped. They didn't care if you worshipped other gods or had other people or other um, ancestors that you worshipped. All they cared about is that you would pay homage to Caesar and don't dishonor the Roman gods. In fact, adopt them if you can with your own. And you can keep your own household god and you can keep your family gods. That didn't matter. What bothered Rome was that Christianity came along and said, no, now you have to give up all those other gods. In fact, you should know this because it's kind of interesting, and I'll cover a little bit of this part uh, next Sunday. But in the first century and the second century, Christians were actually considered to be atheists. The Christians were called atheists. That was the term that was used to describe them sometimes. And they were described as because Christians didn't believe in the many gods, they believed in a God, the God. And then they added a new one who claimed to be the only one. So this was an obstacle the Gentiles who embraced Christianity had to pass. And it was hard. But Gentiles kept coming to Jesus because they were moved by the beauty of the story of Christ. They were moved by the dignity, by the mercy, by the grace that Jesus taught and lived. 
But the idea of there being one God seemed to the Gentiles to be so different and so new. And this is a really important part of our journey. And we're going to talk a little bit about next week, but this is the part nobody told you. When Gentiles learned about Jesus, they fell in love with him and his teachings and his work. And what happens when you fall in love with something? What happens when you fall in love with God? What happens when you are new to faith? You're absolutely rocked to the core. What do you do? You begin to investigate. You begin to study. You begin to read. You begin to say, tell me more about this faith. So when Paul would write letters, they were so excited and they would read to the church. Apostle Paul was the early missionary that, that began to spread this message to all the known world. And they, were, they wanted to know more and more and more. And they became enamored with the sacred text of the Jewish people. Now, before Jesus came along, this was not the case. Now, there was always a tiny number of Gentiles, of people who weren't Jews, that were kind of interested in Judaism. And we do have records that some Gentiles did become uh, uh, close followers of of God of of the Jews. And occasionally somebody would be even baptized and become the Gentile version of the Jewish person and they would, be, they would be a person that would follow Judaism. But for most part, Gentiles weren't interested at all in the, in the Jewish sacred texts. And there was a lot of good reasons for this. One, they did, didn't know much about it. Jewish people kept to themselves. Jewish people ate different kind of foods. Jewish people refused to work on the Sabbath. The Romans called them lazy all the time. I mean, Romans were efficient group. Work seven days a week, every day of the month, 365 days of the year. Get things done. Build roads. And here come these Jewish people who say, no, 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 we got to rest. Well, these guys must be lazy. It's interesting how we've caught up to that laziness. That we've caught up to that area that we know that our body is designed in such a way that it actually needs rest. That it actually needs margins that it actually needs breathing room, that it actually needs a place to recover. So the Gentiles didn't understand a lot of this about the Jewish people. They saw them as these different people that ate different foods, didn't work on the Sabbath, and they wouldn't allow you to marry their daughters, and they wouldn't allow their sons to marry your daughters or allow their daughters to marry your sons. They were just, they just kept to themselves. And we know this, that even in the New Testament, the second part of the Bible, when uh, Apostle Peter, when, when uh, he's one of the followers of Jesus, that 15 years after the resurrection, he had still not entered a home of a Gentile person and had probably never invited a Gentile person to his home because Jewish people kept to themselves. They had their own dietary laws, they had their own way of doing things, and they did not want to mix. So inside Judea, in the Galilee, where, mo- where this was mostly Jewish, this was an easy thing to do. There were pockets uh, of Jewish people in most major cities. But places like Ephesus and Rome and Corinth and Galatia and other regions of Galatia where the Jewish people settled, this was a little bit harder to keep to yourselves. So Gentile people, those that are not Jewish, had virtually no interest in Jewish religion and virtually no interest in the Jews until they were introduced to the good news of Jesus. And when they were introduced to the, new, uh, the good news of Jesus, when, when they were confronted by Apostle Paul, when they were confronted by Peter, when they began to talk to eyewitnesses to the resurrection, and when they discovered that this was all spoken about in the Old Testament, but it wasn't called Old Testament yet, it was, it was in, the, in the Jewish text, in the Law and the Prophets. When they discovered this, when they discovered the Law and the Prophets, 
and they saw that this, there was a backstory to their new story, they became very interested in the Jewish text. Now, this is a very clar- big clarifier here. They weren't interested in Judaism. They were interested in the story that connected Jesus to them. Now, this is an amazing, big, amazing part. It's kind of a shock and awe to a degree of amazing. We can't even begin to describe. When they began to explore the Jewish texts, when they began to read it for themselves, they didn't even know what to call some of them. It took them till about middle second century before the Gentile church even was able to assemble the list of Jewish texts. And they would eventually begin to consider them sacred scripture and canon. So, and so this took over a long period of time. But to their amazement, when they discovered that the Jewish the Jews whose religion was older than the religion of the Romans, that was older than the religion of the Greeks, they discovered that the Jewish people had always, from the very beginning, only believed in one God. So Gentiles who were introduced to Jesus were now told to put away other gods because he's the only God, fall in love with the scriptures, fall in love with the story of Jesus, begin to investigate and find that this very ancient religion actually worshipped one and only God. This, this, I know for us, it's kind of like, well, yeah. But this was groundbreaking for them because everyone around them worshipped many gods. And so during the first and second century and third century, Christians were persecuted by Romans because the Christians, as we said last week, would not worship those many gods and would not declare Caesar as Lord. But predominantly, the Jewish people had never worshipped or honored Roman gods either. And the Jewish people had never declared Caesar as Lord. Now, there were some compromises made. Long as you pay taxes, you can have your temple and all this kind of stuff. But the Jewish people also didn't worship the Roman gods. So the question as I'm unpacking this and saying, Gentiles are finding that Jews worshipped only one God as well, and this is very ancient. The question we should be asking ourselves is, why is it that the empire, the Roman empire, gave the Jewish people a pass but persecuted the Christians? And the Jewish people were just as guilty as Christians for not declaring Caesar as Lord and not honoring any of the Roman gods. But why is it that the Romans left the Jewish people alone? And do you know why? It is because Romans Romans allowed the Jews to have a pass on this idea with Caesar and their gods. And this is really important and key part here that, that connects our story is because Romans honored ancient things. And Romans knew that the Jewish religion was older than the story of Romulus or Remus, and the Jewish religion was older than the pantheon of Greek gods, and they recognized that the Jewish scripture, the Jewish religion, the Jewish tradition was older than any of the religions of that time. You know, it's like today we're, so, we're very progressive. The new things are kind of advancing, advancing us, and, and we're so excited about new things that come along. But it doesn't take long to ground us sometimes to realize the wisdom of the past. And the Romans recognized and saw that there was wisdom in honoring something older than them. That there was wisdom that's passed on through generations and we need to pay attention to it. So even though the Romans didn't agree with them, even though the Romans didn't like it, they honored the age of the Jewish faith. But they would not honor the new faith that the Christians or the followers of the way were all of a sudden propagating throughout the empire. So when the Gentile Christians began for the first time with their scholars and their bishops, began for the first time exploring the Jewish scriptures, they were shocked to discover 
that the oldest religion anyone ever knew had recognized that there was only one God right from the beginning. And this is all connected. The implications of this were staggering. The implications were that since ancient times, every single other nation that worshipped multiple gods, that every family that worshipped their ancestors, that every single culture since ancient times must have had it wrong. And the Jews had known this from the beginning. And they opened up the, and they unscrolled the first segment of the Jewish text that we call Genesis, and the Gentiles were so eager to learn it, and they unscrolled it, and here's what they found. In the beginning, God. Now, many of us who grew up in the church or have read the Bible, we've heard this so many times. We've read this so many times. We've argued about it so many times. We've disputed whether this or that, which word to take, what does it mean, what was the original Hebrew and we kind of get lost in the fog of it. But what I don't want us to miss in this original context, what I don't want us to miss there in the original implication here, and this was shocking to the ancient world, because when the Gentiles opened that scroll and read it, they would have expected to read, in the beginning, gods. But here they read, in the beginning, God. And not only that, and this is a little bit off, off the story, but I wanted to share about it. Not only that, something was revealed to them that there was a cause to start this world. That there was someone who deeply wanted to start the world that mirrored his love and his grace and his mercy. And if you want to kind of wreck your brain, try to consider how something came out of nothing, uh, It'll, it'll mess up your mind, really. And, and I mean that genuinely, not in a smug way, not in putting anybody down. We all wrestle with, wrestle with questions of why and how, and I think it's important to wrestle these to the ground. But when the Gentiles began to read these ancient texts, they see that it begins with God, who had a purpose. And they realize that Moses, and Moses, by the way, is likely who wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, who's recording the story of God. And they see, the Gentiles are connecting the dots. They see that Moses is building a case that's no longer needed because his argument actually ultimately succeeded today in the West. But the point that Moses is trying to make is something that we all assume today. But Moses is writing to an ancient group of people who all they know is slavery who all they know is being, they've forgotten what it's like to be human. And all they know is the power of the Egyptian gods, the pantheon of gods. And so Moses is trying to help them narrow and understand and to re-believe and to become atheists as it relates to the Egyptian gods and become believers in the one God that the Jewish people call Yahweh. Now Yahweh is a Hebrew word that means I am that I am. And that is the name that God reveals to Moses in the burning bush when, when Moses says, what is your name? What, what shall I call you? And he says, I am that I am, Yahweh. Moses is making a point that God created the heavens and the earth and the beginning, in the beginning, God created. In Genesis, we find something extraordinary. It's so different. There's nothing even close. No similarity, no borrowing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's nothing close to this of that time. Genesis is nothing like the Egyptian creation myths. 
It's nothing like the Canaanite creation myths. It's nothing like the Babylonian creation myths. All those myths have gods who are at odds with themselves and they're at war and and they kill and murder and pillage all the time and they create people out of body parts and body fluids and this brings us to this next epic ahead of the the time, this extraordinary time where people were just these playthings. And in all ancient creation myths, womankind, mankind is an afterthought. It's something to take the load off, to lighten the load, to have slaves, to have things to play with, to abuse, to, uh, to have fun with. Humanity in all of those myths, in all of those religions, is just an afterthought. Because of the way ancient people embrace these ancient mythologies about their gods, individuals had absolutely no rights. Women had absolutely no status, no hope. There was no intrinsic value in anyone. The violence and injustice that we would see in these God stories, in these creation stories, would then be mimicked by the kings and leaders of these stories. They would perpetuate the violence and enslavement of people because that's how they understood God had created them. The kings were essentially acting like their fathers in heaven. And then you come to Genesis. And it's a stark contrast with no parallel, nothing even close. And I know people will tell you it's kind of similar in this and there's a flood or this. It's nothing even close in the context of what people were writing at that time. Any serious historian who looks at the stories and compares them, nothing is even close. Genesis says what no other pagan myth said. While the rest made idols to represent gods, while the rest perpetuated violence to mimic the, the gods of violence, this faith said there was God who created his representatives already. That we are the images. That we no longer need to make things of gold and rock and stone and wood. We have been made in the image of God. We are the most complex creatures with thought and wonder. That we are more than just a bunch of firing atoms. That we are extraordinarily unique. And we read in Genesis, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image. In the Jewish text, the creation of womankind and mankind is the pinnacle, not an afterthought of creation, not a way to have playthings. It's the pinnacle of creation. And the reason this is important, and please don't miss this, and this is what the Gentiles connected with when they saw the way of Jesus and they saw the goodness of Christ and they wanted all of that. And when they read this story, this is what they connected that we miss sometimes. When they read this story and saw that God said that you are not an afterthought, that you're a pinnacle, what they saw here is that God gave them dignity. Dignity of every woman, dignity of every man, dignity of every child. It is established in the beginning of the Jewish sacred texts. And nothing that they had seen or learned or, or experienced in all their other gods said this. And here comes Jesus And here comes his apostles and they plant church and they tell him of this new beautiful way and they love it. And when they explore the Jewish texts, they see the same dignity, the same mercy, the same grace and the same love. There was no parallel to this. 
In stark contrast, the Egyptian pantheon of gods that they had just escaped from, the Jewish people in the, in the, in the Old Testament, in the first part of the story, in the Exodus, God tells them, do not worship nature anymore. Think about this. You will no longer worship nature, but you will care for creation because I made it good. The implication being, you are to be good stewards of this place because I made you in my image and you are my representatives and you are to love well and you have dignity, so care for this place. In fact, those of you that have studied some of the Genesis accounts, you will notice that the garden, the way it's created and all the dimensions and kind of the way it's explained, mirrors the building of the temple later. I don't know if you've noticed that. It mirrors the temple because the garden was the place where God dwelt with his people. And when people chose and stepped out of it, and God pursued them and loved them, when they built the temple, they made it in the same way as the garden. That's another whole story. And the idea we are still wrestling to this ground, every single pagan culture found the establishment of the Jewish people, worshipped nature and elements of nature and animals of nature and all kind of mixtures of animals of nature. But in the Jewish text, in these sacred scriptures, from the beginning, God established a unique worldview when he created mankind in his own image. And this was unthinkable. In the image of God is repeated for emphasis. God created them, male and female. In the beginning, the God of the Jews who became the God of the Christians gave you dignity that the world is still trying to catch up with today. Only recently has civilization began to wrestle um, with the dignity of men and women. The reason we celebrate the International Women's Day today all around the world is because women had no status for so long in all parts of the world. We're just catching up to this idea that the Jewish oldest religion had the dignity of women and men. And there are parts in the world where there is no dignity for women and children. Now, our problem when we come to Genesis is we get very distracted. We introduce things from our modern uh, enlightenment and we introduce things and we begin to see Genesis as a science book and we look for all the mathematical answers in it and we try to force Genesis to be something it was never, ever meant to be. Now, what do you, imagine Moses when he was writing. Imagine his context to explain this dignity and beauty that God did in this world to a group of slaves who have forgotten their humanity. Imagine, how would, you how would you teach such deep truth and not miss any parts? Well, you would use poetry. Consider the power of poetry, the power to hold truth, beauty, art, and metaphor together. Not making truth any less. Not taking away from power of this message but being able to hold all things tangible in one hand and saying, this is the truth that God created you with purpose, with love and dignity, and he's the cause for this creation. And Moses' point when he wrote Genesis is unique and clear and God-given, which was that God created the world. We get all confused on timing and sequence and the creation account, and we miss the magnificence of these ancient statements. Moses, and this is no exaggeration, Moses drops a bomb right from the beginning. Moses introduces a radically different, unparalleled 
worldview. And this worldview would be foundation for what we later called the golden rule. And we say, well, yeah, that's self-obvious. Except that the golden rule isn't self-obvious and is not reflected in nature at all. And let's be honest, it's not reflected very well in the human nature. But the idea was introduced at the very beginning when God said, you are not means to an end. You are not to worship nature. You're going to make, I'm going to make you as close as possible in my image, which means every woman, every man, every child, every person you come face to face with bears the image of the creator. Every person we have conversation with bears the image of the creator, which should be a reminder to us how we treat one another. And in the beginning, we are introduced um, to a God who saves, a God who redeems, who delivers, and who never gives up on us. All of this, right from the beginning, right from the start, by saying, in the beginning, God created. God who gives us freedom to choose and then honors our choices. And then, this Jewish God, Yahweh, does the most ungodlike thing imaginable for that time. And he goes to work to reverse the consequences of mankind's decision to choose against him. Genesis 1 creates and gives us and provides us with a meta-narrative for our lives. The big picture, a worldview that answers life's most important questions, that wrestles the why questions we exist, the why there is something rather than nothing, and why is that something able to wonder and dream and think and imagine and create? Let's get a bit more personal. Why are you here today? And why do you matter? Dostoevsky, a Russian novelist and famous thinker and philosopher and a deeply spiritual man, said, beauty will save the world. The fact that everything is so perfect in our world, scientifically, allegorically, emotionally, the reason, the, the fact that everything is so beautiful, I mean, the other option is things can be gray and blah. Is that an adjective? Like, <laughs> if things, things could be very ugly. But the fact that everything is so beautiful makes us wonder. The fact that we want to go on walks and see sunsets and sunrises, the reason that we want to go on vacations to Arizona or to Mexico to see beautiful parts of the world is that beauty is all around us and God creates that beauty and puts us at the center of it as pinnacles of creation and says steward this and care for this. Beauty will save the world. The beauty of the Christian story is revealed to the Gentiles and for the first time as they look at all their previous gods and all their previous worldview, they see that they're not an accident, that they're not an afterthought, that they were not made for slavery and abuse, and that's just their lot in life or their caste, that they were created with meaning and purpose, that God wanted image bearers who, who could know and relate to one another and who could relate to him because he's so personal that he loves his creation. And this is my favorite part. And when the time was right, when everything was just as it needed to be, Yahweh entered the world through a baby. 
entered the world as a human, as Jesus. He entered the world so he could reconcile it and make it right. Because the world went off course. And with many gods and with many chaotic ideas and with many ways to enslave and, and be violent and unjust and offer no dignity and see people as worthless, God chose to come into this world and say, you have dignity and I love you. And because he did that and was introduced as Jesus to the Gentiles, when the Gentiles looked at the original scriptures, they were astonished. So back to the first century Gentiles. For them, maybe, or for them and maybe uh, as it is for us, the opening line of the Hebrew Bible was significant. And they realized something that was very difficult for the first century Gentile and Jewish person to acknowledge. And that was the fact that the Gentiles will now be adopted into this story. In the beginning opening line of the scripture, they began to adopt their own scripture, their own documents about Jesus. And they realized that Jewish people had it right all along. And the Old Testament, as they began to be called, these old Jewish scriptures were pointing to him the whole time. And were talking and speaking about him the whole time. And they had it right all along. Which, of course, fueled the Gentiles to read more and more and understand the laws and the prophets. And they moved very quickly to adopt these scriptures and adopt this all as their own story. And the stage was set for the inclusion of the Jewish scripture and the New Testament documents to become one Bible. But the inclusion would not be without struggles. There's problems and there's arguments and there's councils and there's disagreements and books of the Bible to pick or not to pick and there was all that and we'll unpack all that as weeks come. But there was something significant that the Gentiles noticed about this one God that mirrored the way of Jesus and pointed to Christ in such a powerful way that they could not refute and they adopted this story as their story because it was always their story. And as, we, as we're unpacking all of this, I want to suggest a resource for all of us. The reason there's uh, about 30 to 40 people that meets in chapel every Sunday morning at 9.30 is because a lot of us have questions about the Bible. And a lot of us have questions about how we got the Bible. And a lot of us have questions of, that we may not even thought about, that a whole group of people that did, were, wasn't Jewish took the Jewish story and adopted it and made it their story. A lot of us have these questions. And so we meet at 9.30 on Sunday in the chapel, and we do something that's called the Bible Project. Now, the Bible Project is a nonprofit. Uh, group that has many scholars and professors and artists who get together and find a poignant way to share the story of God. And so we get together, we watch a short video on a subject, on a chapter, on a theme, on a character of the Bible, or on the whole Bible. And after that, something powerful happens as we go into groups around the table and whether somebody's gone to seminary or a seasoned Bible reader or somebody's brand new to it, we discuss it and we wrestle with it. Because we've noticed something today, I hope, that the Gentiles, noti Gentiles noticed. They noticed that the story of the Old Testament was pointing to Jesus. And more than that, the story of the Old Testament was about Jesus. And they made it, and they made it their way. 
So I want to encourage you and invite you to join us at Bible Project every Sunday, 9.30 in the chapel. It's just half an hour, and then you have some time to unpack and then join us for the service. We're going to continue and unpack these things. We're going to continue in the Bible series next week, so I hope you bring a friend. I hope there's things that are stirring in you. I hope there's things you didn't realize. Because so many times when you look at the book of the Bible, we take it for granted, and we just say, well, here's the book, and here's it tells us a bunch of things. But how they came together and how things were adopted and how the early church saw Jesus in the first lines of the Bible matters. And it matters for our story. So join us next week as we continue to uncover the Bible. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your love and we thank you for the dignity and honor that you give each person. We thank you, God, that right from the beginning of creation, of cosmos, of all things coming together, that you made people to reflect you and you asked these people to care for one another and for this planet. We thank you, God, that you love us so deeply that you would become one of the people and that you would defeat death and because of that, we would have life. We thank you for that honor and that gift and that love. Be with us as we go from here. We praise in your name. Amen. We're going to have a team up front. If anything uh, that we talked about touched your heart or you want to talk about, please come up. They also can pray with you. Other than that, go in peace.